Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter number 2. How many of you have ever been to a sermon before, been to a service, heard a sermon preached, and somewhere during that sermon, you started to almost subtly look around. Maybe you craned your neck just a bit to see. Because you know where they're normally seated. And while this message is unfolding, you are looking to see if so-and-so is there. Because this would be a really good message for them. How many of you have ever done that before? Okay, how many of you are looking this morning just to see? Because they probably really need this message. I find it interesting that... um, There are so many times when we hear sermons preached or some Bible truth unfolded and we think this would be really good for them. They really need to hear this. This is one of their biggest problems. The chapter we are about to look at today is a passage of scripture that from where we've just been in Romans chapter 1 it's almost as if now quite frankly it's the same message only it's almost like the message that we had in Romans chapter 1 does this 180 it's it's almost like it's an entirely different message you say how can it be the same but different Okay, look in your Bible at Romans 1. So look at it with me. In fact, I have these marked throughout my scriptures. And and I have it also, what what we're going to look at in chapter 2, I have these marked throughout the passage. Look in Romans chapter 1, start in verse number 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in, would you say the next word with me, is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Look down at verse number 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to their uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but take pleasure in them that do them. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is clearly addressing the immoral man. This person has this willful, immoral defiance against Almighty God. And the Word of God, with pinpoint accuracy, goes after them. 
It's interesting that when we'll get to Romans chapter 3, the apostle, certainly the instrument of the Holy Spirit, really goes after what we might refer to as the religious man. There's little distinction at times between Romans 2 and 3 as to its audience, but but this person in Romans chapter 2 may not be the religious person, but clearly they take some refuge in the fact that they are not like them. Yeah, I may have my issues, but I'm telling you, my issues are not like their issues. This person has some sense of moral superiority, and they hide behind it, finding how very easy it is to see the problems of you and excuse the problems of me. Look at verse number one in Romans chapter two. I have these also circled in my own Bible, therefore thou, therefore thou, he's saying therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do the same, which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Over the past two weeks, we have looked at sin revealed and sin rewarded. Today, we stay against that very dark backdrop of sin. And today, we look at the inexcusable, undeniable, inescapable judgment of God. If I were to give this message a subtitle, it would be, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Let's look at where the apostle begins in this message as he takes this shift from them to you, beginning in verse number one. First, today we see inexcusable. Again, verse number one, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. How many of you ever remember your mom coming into your room that was less than in a stellar fashion clean? And your mother looks around and then with hands on her hips, she says, there is no excuse for this. Okay. And then immediately our mind starts to flood with excuses and she says, ah, 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 there's no excuse for this. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is doing 
by means of the Holy Spirit penetrating our heart, he is saying, you are inexcusable, O man. We immediately in life look for excuses. Now, now maybe there was a time when the dog really did eat your homework, but from the very beginning of man's experience, we have tried to find something behind which we can hide, taking our own failures, minimizing them, and another's failures, and maximizing those. For example, from our very beginning, man's first recorded uh, infraction with Almighty God. We find Adam trying to remove his own guilt and place it squarely on the shoulders of another, upon anyone other than ourself. Adam, what have you done? It's not my fault. I have an excuse. Ultimately, God, this must be your fault because the woman thou gavest me. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, God, listen, if you would have done right by me, I wouldn't have had this failure. The poet wrote some years ago, thou knowest thou hast made me with passions wild and strong and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. God, I know I'm the one who did this, but I've got an excuse for, and God comes back by saying, listen, there is no excuse. Beginning in chapter two, I do not believe that Paul is speaking to the Jew or Gentile singularly but to all of us collectively, whether we acknowledge our unrighteousness or not. And Paul's initial argument is straightforward. He's saying, when you judge another, you have at that moment simultaneously judged yourself. He said, you recognize that there is some kind of an infraction and you actually, through your condemnation of another, you have spoken your own judgment because you stand condemned as well. We all succumb to the universal desire to judge others while excusing ourselves. We condemn the adulterer but fail to acknowledge the standard set by Jesus that whosoever looketh on a woman with lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. The sin of others is always easier to see than the sin of self. We see the sin of a spouse who's inattentive and consumed with work or hobbies or self and excuse our own sin of replacing them with our focus on children or friends or anything that will hurt back because we have been hurt. We see the sin of a roommate whose willful pursuit of worldliness is an offense to what we call our righteous indignation. But more often than not, our own indignation is our self-righteous indignation, not an offense from the holiness of God. We see the sin of an oppressive or unkind boss or supervisor, but fail to see the sin of ingratitude for work or to identify our own problems of laziness or the poison of a critical spirit. We easily become indignant at the sin of others and indulgent of our own. It's easy for us to decry those that are mentioned in Romans 1, 24 and 25, God gave them up to, to uncleanness through the loss of their own flesh. And we say an amen when we hear someone preach about women who, who have, have burned in their lust one towards another. 
or men who have forsaken the natural use and we can sit there and say amen and the apostle Paul says before you say amen he says I'm speaking directly to you the self-righteous we fail to see ourselves in light of Romans chapter 1 verse 18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men there are some and I can myself be guilty of the very same there are some who use a well-timed or even well-intentioned amen without understanding that the word should never be used as a vocal agreement to the condemnation of others Rather, it should be used as an acknowledgement of God's exclusive righteousness found only in himself. Instead, we hear of God's condemnation of the sinner and we say, amen, so be it. Instead of saying, oh my, and realizing that were it not for the grace of God, there go I. I did a little cursory study on the use of the word amen and I find it so interesting that God in the Old Testament actually had people say an amen. He would go through this list of of wrongs and some what we would call today gross immorality to which the people were to say amen. Do you know what I believe God's doing in the Old Testament? He's showing us the fallacy, the condemnation of our own mouths. The very thing to which we say amen we fail at either physically or in our own hearts. And then take the same study, the use of the word amen from the Old Testament and move it into the New Testament. And where do we see the word, how do we see it used in the New Testament? Never to the condemnation of others and always to the praise of God. Every time we see the use of the word amen used, it's not as if we are preaching our own sermon regarding our righteousness and the failure of others. Instead, we're using it for the exclusive righteousness and holiness of Almighty God. And to that, all throughout the New Testament, the writers say, amen. At times we may hear pastors say things like, It bothers me when, for example, we might say it bothers me when children don't honor their parents. Amen. Well, have we perfectly honored our parents? At times we we hear them say things like men should act like men and, and be the person God created them to be. Amen. Do you always act as the man that God intended you to be? I suppose there are many things that should bother us, bother all of us, but it is not the fact that it bothers a pastor that it is right or wrong. It matters that it is an offense to the holiness of God. And that should bother us all. Our focus shouldn't be on accusing the sin of others with a white hot indignation behind which we hide our own unrighteousness. In other words, we shouldn't be so consumed with the form of ungodliness as we are the essence of ungodliness. And the essence of sin is pervasive. And the apostle Paul says to all of us, you are inexcusable.
And then he goes on and he says, now before you try to dodge this, he said, it's undeniable. Look at verse number two. Verse number two, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. You know, at times we might say, well, well, God, you got the wrong person. Yeah, yeah I know that mankind is bad and, and evil seducers are waxing worse and worse, but not me, Lord. He says, wait, wait, wait. I am the perfect judge. I never get it wrong. I will never point the finger at you and say, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, that, that was intended for someone else. The words, we are sure, come from the Greek word oida, which carries the idea of awareness of that which is commonly known. This is obvious. And God, the righteous judge, never confuses. Our judgment often falls short. We don't know everything. Our view is limited to the external, but not God. In Luke chapter 16, verse 15, the Bible says this. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. He said, you may actually be looking at something that you say, well, that is so highly esteemed. And God says, yeah, but there's something that you don't know. Let me peel back the facade. And as the facade becomes taken and rolled away, we see that which God sees and it is an abomination before God. We praise it. And God says, wait just a moment. The phrase which knoweth the hearts is one Greek word. Cardionostes. Cardionostes. This is an interesting word. It's almost cardiodiagnostics. Cardiognosco. To know the heart. God which diagnoses with perfect accuracy, the heart says, this is not only inexcusable, in my sight as the perfect judge, it is undeniable. We judge with such limited knowledge, but not God. He knows my heart, your heart. So with this absolute knowledge, where does it leave us? We see we're inexcusable. This is undeniable. It brings us to another really dark backdrop. This is inescapable. There's no getting around this. I try to move and wherever I move, have you ever seen a picture before painted and the artist painted the picture in such a way that wherever you move, the eyes of the painting are always looking at you. It's as if wherever we dodge, the eyes of God, are looking directly at you, at me. This is inescapable. Romans chapter two, verse number three. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Have you ever watched a scene like this unfold? Have you ever seen a rather... Um, I don't know, full of himself, like a shift manager at a, at a local fast food chain. A shift manager who's there and, and he's got his clipboard or whatever. And, and he is, um, he's kind of going over stuff, watching other people and giving direction and instruction and, and just rather full of himself, okay? But he's unaware that even as he's doing that, the owner of the store is actually evaluating him. 
And we get the idea that there are times when we begin to, with our, our, our clipboard full of the moral wrongs of others, and we begin to walk through this and, and make notes because clearly there is a problem with people around us. And God, the righteous judge, has actually turned his attention to me. Now we see we're in a place where this is inescapable judgment. The words thinkest thou, it's logizomai, thinkest thou, and thinkest thou that you're going to avoid this? He says, is this your logic? Logizomai, it's the word that we get logic from. He says, your logic is flawed. He says, your thinking here is skewed. Thinking that I can judge others, but I myself am free of the same. The point, by the way, is not to stop thinking logically but rather to stop putting yourself in the place of God and not submitting yourself to the same level of examination. He's saying, don't use flawed logic. The danger of self-righteousness is, is this twisted thinking. And it is true for both the believer and the unbeliever. The self-righteous person always overestimates their own perfection and underestimates God's. Now, I didn't say another person. We overestimate our own morality, our own self-righteousness. And by that, we are actually underestimating the righteous holiness of God. One man said it this way. Paul uncovers in these verses a strangely human foible. Namely, our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. God was looking at something far more significant than an outward acknowledgement of the law. He is pointing out the fact that everyone, the unrighteous, the self-righteous, the religiously righteous, everyone needs a righteousness that they cannot provide themselves. So, so we see we're inexcusable. This is undeniable. It's inescapable. We, we cannot stand as judge and jury while excusing ourselves from the same judgment. Now, if we're not careful, we're going to find that we have slid into a place where we're actually using this argument to say, well, you know, I, I agree with this. We shouldn't judge anything. Because, you know, with that same judgment, we will be judged. Can a Christian, can a person actually in some way, shape, or form, forgive the bluntness of this, but have a spine and say, that's wrong and that's right? And if we can, how do we do that if we don't want to fall into the judgment of, of okay, I, I'm guilty and I realize that. What then are some things that we have to consider regarding this matter of judgment? Because I, I don't want to do what I'm seeing unfold before us as Romans chapter 2 opens. Can a Christian judge anything or anyone? First, please know that there is a difference between judging and being judgmental. The passage we've been looking at deals with primarily 
the judgmental. Saying you are the sinner and clearly I am the saint. When are we being judgmental? How is it then that we can distinguish, have some difference between, I have to discern, I have to separate, I have to judge right from wrong, good from evil, a path to pursue and a path to reject. How do I judge those things? Well, well when are we being judgmental? Okay, first, when you don't have all the facts. When you don't have all the facts, The Bible says in John chapter 7, verse 51, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Did you know even the Jewish moral code said, all right, pause, let's put on the brakes just a little bit. We probably don't have all the facts. Have you ever had one of those aha moments before with someone? Where when you first heard about something that they did, something that they said, something that they were engaged in, and you just couldn't believe that they were involved in that. And it just, like, it just shocked you. And then you said, hey, I heard you did this, 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 and this. And they said, oh, wait, wait. The reason I did that is because, and then you have that, oh, wow. Okay, now I understand You know, so often you and I jump to some conclusion before pausing for just a moment and saying, okay, let me make sure I have all the facts. Ironside, H.A. Ironside was a man who preached for a lot of years. In in one of his commentaries, Ironside told the story about one of his friends who, who went by the title Bishop Potter. Bishop Potter was sailing on one of those great transatlantic ocean liners and he's sailing for Europe and and from the States. And when he got on board, this was back in the day where, where he got on board and he found out that he would actually be sharing a cabin with another passenger. And so he went to the cab and he met this passenger and, and upon doing so, he went up to the porter And there he took some valuables of his, his gold watch and a few other things that were valuable. And he said, I don't normally take advantage of this, but after meeting the person that will be sharing my cabin, um, I felt it wise for me to keep these in your possession. And the porter said, yes, sir, I will keep them in good trust. He said, "Um, you're just after your cabin mate who has done the same, (laughs) okay? The cabin mate sees Bishop Potter and says, hmm, he doesn't look very trustworthy. Do you know, it is so interesting to me that we look at other people and we make these immediate conclusions. Some of those conclusions, quite honestly, may be warranted. But before you draw all the conclusions, take a few moments and gather additional information. We live in a world where people, they look different and sometimes outside of our comfort zone. They're going to present themselves in a way that that was not your upbringing and not your manner and not your dress and not your function and not your way. And, And so often, as soon as we see the person, have you ever been taken back before by a kindness shown to you by a person from whom looking at the person you may have least expected it to come? Why is it that at times we we are very immediately judgmental? We don't know all the facts. Why are we sometimes being judgmental? When are we being judgmental? We don't have all the facts. Number two, when we assume we know the motives of others. 
when we assume we know the motives of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Okay, nothing pertains to what? Pertains to another's motive or heart regarding the matter. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, those things that you and I just can't see. Don't judge the things you cannot see. And then it goes on, it says, and will, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. He says, listen, you can't see another person's heart. Now, I would submit to you, we should work hard so that people can. I mean, work hard so that your heart's not hidden. Let people see what's in you. That has to do with let your light so shine. But don't conclude that I know exactly why you are doing what you're doing. The truth of the matter is we don't always know why. There's probably not a parent here who hasn't gotten after a child and felt terrible about it afterwards because your child was trying to do something very pleasant for you. You come into the kitchen and what are you doing in here? This is a mess. I can't believe what you, mom, I was, don't even start with me. I know why you're doing, and they're trying to make breakfast for mom, you know. What were you doing? As if she knew I was making you breakfast. That's what, you're a precious child, you know. (laughs) We don't always know the motive. When are we being judgmental? When we don't know all the facts, when we assume we know the motives. Number three, when our judgment on others is an attempt to make us feel better about ourselves. We're being judgmental. When my judgment on you is actually an attempt for me to feel better about self. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1, we have this this parable, this illustration that Jesus uses. And I find it interesting that it's as if he draws upon his own history as a carpenter. I mean, how many times have you been working with wood before and the dust starts to fly and and a little speck lands in your eye? I I was out in my front yard yesterday and... and, uh, Sadie, my dog, and I were out in the front yard and the wind had been blowing hard all night and during the day and and sticks were all over the yard. And I just start picking up sticks from the front yard, making a pile of sticks. And and I pick them up and Sadie scatters them and we're having a great time, okay? And the wind's blowing and although my glasses are on, just a little speck in my eye. So you pause and and you begin to, to work your eye and try to Try to pull out the little speck from your eye. Invisible probably to the natural eye, but but there nonetheless. Jesus begins to unfold something for us in, in terms that he would know. Verse number three, Matthew chapter seven. And why? This is a rhetorical question. And why beholdest thou the moat? that is in thy brother's eye, but considers not the beam that is in thine own eye. The moat, the, the word literally means, it's, we're just talking about a little fragment, just a little piece, a speck, so to speak. Verse four, or, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the moat out of thine eye. And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, thou hypocrite, 
first cast out the beam out of thine own eye and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. Do you get a, are, are there certain pictures in your mind that you get these humorous mental pictures? That this person who has this little speck in their eye, like, oh, hey, I got something in my eye. And another person says, yeah, I know you do. And they come walking over and they're smacking you with this beam that's protruding, protruding out of their eye. They just have this huge beam and, and uh, I'm going to help you with that. Now, don't you also find this interesting that Jesus doesn't condemn helping another person with the speck that's in their eye. But Jesus does say, you better deal with yourself first before you start to help someone else with the little fragment, the little speck that is in their eye. When is it that we find ourselves being judgmental? Oh, you've got a problem. And how clearly we feel like we see the problems of others. The charge, thou hypocrite, means we are putting on a good show. This feel better about myself often reveals that I hate the badness of others more than I love the goodness of God. The challenge for this person is that they see the badness everywhere and find it challenging to see the goodness of God anywhere. And that is verse number four. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee, you, to repentance. You say, okay, so, so wow, when am I being judgmental? I get it. So am I ever supposed to judge? And the answer is yes. When can I judge? Well, when first you have judged yourself. First, examine yourself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28. But let a man examine himself. Psalm 26, 2. Examine me, O Lord. Prove me. Try my reins and my heart. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. When am I to judge? When I have first looked into the mirror of God's word and said, Holy Spirit, turn on the spotlight of yourself into my life and reveal the hidden thing, the thing that I may not be able to see, that which I'm blind to, reveal to me myself. When am I to judge? When I have examined myself. When am I to judge? When there is a violation of God's holiness. When there is a violation of God's holiness. Hebrews 5.14 But strong meat belongeth to them who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. Oh, wow. They have, they have been putting their faith to some good work and we might say workouts they've exercised their faith so they're growing in their faith they're putting it to use it's like okay I got to navigate life I'm going to be in a lot of circumstances settings that I don't know exactly what to do so now I bring my faith with me I, I don't park my faith back home you, you know I, I can't say I'm, I'm showing up for work and when I'm at work I'm just at work no 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 you're you're a full-time Christian so I bring, I bring my faith with me. We're, we're to bring our faith with us everywhere we go and we're putting it to work. And now we've exercised our faith to do what? To discern, to separate. Remember, that's what the word means. Okay, this goes over here. This goes over here. This goes, okay. So now I'm taking my faith, putting it to work. 
wait, that's inconsistent with the holiness of God. That's, that's inconsistent with him. I set that over here. That's, that's bad. I judge that. I judge it. That's wrong. Why? Because it's inconsistent with the holy character of God. So therefore, if I'm to be a reflector of him, if I'm made in his likeness, in his image, I got to set that over here because it's inconsistent. And, and, and this, okay, that's going to help me. Hey, God created that for my good. He said, enjoy that. And I'm going to add no sorrow with it. I can enjoy, I can do, participate. That's good. When is it that I am to judge? Well, when there's a violation of God's holiness and I can discern between the two. You should be able to do this. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Don't go away from this saying, well, hey, amen, nobody should judge anything. No, 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 no. Be careful that you're not judging others in the same manner with which you are judged. When am I to judge when I first examine myself, when there's an obvious violation of any violation of God's holiness. Number three, when the word of God is taught. When should I judge? When the word is taught. Second John 1.10, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine. Wow, that, you might think that's kind of arrogant. No, 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 no. Here what John's saying is, listen, this is truth. We know the truth. And if anyone brings you any other truth, receive him not into your house neither bid him godspeed he said listen you judge that to be wrong that is not truth and I'll have nothing to do with it the apostle Paul went so far to say listen if any other if an angel from heaven bring to you any other gospel you abandon it immediately judge it to be wrong when is it that we're supposed to judge when the word of God is taught and and lastly when do I judge when I can offer help to sinners, realizing I may need the same. When I can offer help to a sinner, realizing, wow, what but for the grace of God, there go I. Brethren, if any man be taken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Don't ever say, that will never happen to me, or I would never do that, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Romans chapter two, verse three said, and thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God the, the great preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, was known for his austerity. He was a gentleman continually in the pulpit. He was very careful with the manner with which he communicated the word of God. He, he didn't use colloquial slang when he was preaching. So for him to paraphrase this closing passage of scripture was quite a stretch for Barnhouse. And he acknowledged it to his church. But Barnhouse translates, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? He paraphrased it like this. You dummy, do you really figure that you've 
concluded an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it, you don't have a ghost of a chance. There is no escape. Do you understand? No escape ever. And this means you, the respectable person sitting in judgment upon another fellow creature and remaining unrepentant yourself. We can conclude by saying, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer.